Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another wonderful and exciting episode of the Anthology of Horror. I'm your host and narrator, Springheeled Jack, and we're going to get started today after just a few brief disclaimers. First of all, the show might offend you. If you're easily offended, please turn the show off and spare me the negative reviews on the podcast store, or the iTunes store, whatever the fuck you call it, uh, because you won't like the show. This is your first and final warning. Second, I use advertisements in this show that I do not own the rights to. They are the creative property of Rockstar Games. That is all. You want wet, then get lustrous. Man, I see this cat all the time. Man, his hair be fly. So I had to grab him. I said, look here, homie. How you get your hair all greasy and fly and shit like that? He told me about lustrous. I said, well, look here, man. Can I borrow some? You see how mine done turned all red and fell out in the back? He gonna look me dead in my eye. It was like, look here, brother, you got to get your own. Lustrious gives you the juice. Make your fro glow wet. Let your fro glow. Lustrious hair care products. Side effects may include coughing, boo-booing, earling, rigor mortis. Enjoy. You're good, but let's be honest, you're not perfect. And that's not American. We strive to be number one in everything. Sports, politics, economics, homelessness, degeneracy. Los Santos is the home of beauty and glamour for the whole world. Live up to society's expectations. Play your part. Your body is a work of art. Don't leave it half finished. It's time for your creative plastic surgery. We'll make your face as tight as a drum. We'll suck fat out of your body with an industrial pump. Increase your confidence with fake breasts to ensure people know what you're all about. For the more adventurous, why not try an extra nose or three breasts? You know how much men like breasts. Can you imagine how wild they'll go for others? My wife was complaining that she did all the work. Carried the baby for nine months, had painful labor. It's not fair to her my nipples are useless. That's why I had creative plastic surgery. I got a set of udders installed. Now my son can suck my udders while I'm watching the game. The fellas at the bar love him too. Men never stared lasciviously at my ass. Then I had a tail attached. Now people can't stop looking. Beauty is not skin deep, it's less than that. Creative plastic surgery, achieve your own utopia. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Halloween special of Anthology of Horror. As I said, I am your host and narrator, Springheeled Jack, and let me say it again, god damn I'm tired of hearing the sound of my own fucking voice. Today's story was written by Rod Serling, yet again, and it's called The Lonely, which is coincidentally one of my favorite Rod Serling stories that I've discovered so far. It was like the surface of a giant stove. This desert that stretched on in a broiling yellow mat to the scrubby line of mountains on one side and the shimmering flat salt flats on the other. Occasional dunes and gullies punctuated the yellow sameness with thin, dark purple streaks. But for the most part, it looked endless and unchanging. A barren mass of sand that beckoned the heat, heat rays and then soaked them into itself. The shack was an alien element on the scene. It stood about... 80 miles from the nearest mountains. It was built of corrugated metal and had a flat, sloping roof. Alongside it was a 1943 sedan. The metal pitted, windshield without glass, looking as if the wind could blow it apart. And sitting on the metal porch, shaded by the overhang of the roof, was James Corey. He was 40, with a lean, long-jawed face and deep-set, light blue eyes. His hair, once brown, was now bleached, and it hung just over his forehead with streaks of gray at the temples. Corey was writing slowly and painstakingly in a large diary. Sometimes he paused and squinted out at the desert around him. In the beginning, Corey had been able to lose himself in activities and forget about the desert for a while. When he'd put the old car together, for example, he'd been able to work three or four hours at a stretch, unmindful of the white orb overhead or even the furnace-like air that sometimes hung heavy and sometimes was thrown at him by the wind in hot gusts. But that was five years ago, when he was first put down here. The old, beat-up car had occupied his time, and writing in his diary had done more for him than pass the time. It had been like a survival exercise. 
in the practice of which a man could train himself to compartmentalize his thoughts, shut out the heat, disregard the loneliness, and somehow make a day go by, and then a night, and then another day, and then another night, and then another day. He'd been 35 when it happened on Earth. At odd times, it would come back to him, graphic and clear, in actual chronology and vivid, almost unbearable. He could see the dead body of his wife, struck down by a wildly speeding driver. This incredibly beautiful woman, in one violent, shrieking moment, was turned into a thing of horror. To lie, an unrecognizable pulp on a city street while the drunken maniac responsible careened along to wind up against a lamp post. Corey saw it happen from his apartment window and dashed into the street. He took one look at his wife and then ran towards the smashed car. The driver was getting out his face ashen with the sudden sobriety laced with horror. It had taken only a moment for Corey to do his job. Goaded by a fury, an anger, a hatred, a torment which knew no bounds, he strangled the man with his bare hands while onlookers screamed and two large men had been unable to tear him away. His trial had been brief. The extenuating circumstances surrounding the homicide kept him from the quote-unquote release pills that had long ago taken over for the gas chambers, the gallows, and the electric chair. But often, sitting on the front porch of his desert home, fingers shaking, skin feeling taut, poreless, his whole body somehow mummified and foreign to him, he would reflect that a sentence of 35 years on a sandy asteroid could be less compassionate than a swift, painless exit into the abyss. Corey fingered quickly through the pages of his diary from August of 1993 back to June of 1990, remembering, in another portion of his brain, how long that passage of time had taken in actuality. He looked out toward the distant salt flats. He had started walking towards them three years ago and collapsed three hours away from the shack. He knew then that the heat and the desert were bars and that the area around his home was a dungeon. He didn't remember exactly at what point he had, become un he had become unable to lose himself in writing or doing chores, and the loneliness of the place began to take on almost physical discomfort. It was an emotional reaction, but it carried with it an ache of body and mind that was deep, real, and constant. Banishment is what they called his punishment. Banishment. Half a lifetime on an asteroid, visited four times a year by a supply ship which stayed, on average, 12 minutes between landing and taking off. The arrival of the spaceship was like a breath of sanity, a recharging of the mind so that it could function during the next three months. Corey penciled in the last line of the day's entry, closed the book, and thought with relief that it wouldn't be long before the supply ship came again. He went over to the car and leaned against it, feeling the heat press against his back, wishing in some strange, illogical way that he could perspire. At least this would be a manifestation of his body. It would be a remonstrance against the elements. But as it was, his flesh was like the sand that he walked on. It took in the heat uninvited and was incapable of reacting. He reached through the windowless opening of the door and pressed the horn. It gave off a deep, sludgy, raspy kind of noise, and then quickly died away. He pressed it again several times, then turned very slowly, leaning against the door, and let his eyes travel the width of the desert beyond. There was a ritual even to loneliness, he thought. Twice a day, he went to his car to look at it, to touch the horn, and sometimes sit in the front seat, staring through a glassless windshield, succumbing to a wishful daydream that the car was on a highway and there was some place to go. Banished. The word held little meaning for him before his sentence. Banished. It meant something new now. It meant a heat that was unbearable. It meant a loneliness beyond rationale. A sobbing hunger for someone of his own kind. A shaky, pulsating yearning to hear a voice other than his own. He went back to the porch, touching the metal railing. It had cooled slightly, and this meant that night was coming. He looked down at his diary, lying on the metal folding chair. He knew exactly what he had written. His mind could pick up anything now and give it back to him because it was uncluttered. Almost a desert itself. The fifteenth day, sixth month, fifth year, the entry began, and all the days, and the months, and the years the same. There'll be a supply ship coming in soon, I think. They're either due or overdue, 
and I hope it's Allenby ship because he's a decent man and he brings stuff for me. The words came back to Corey, almost as if spoken aloud by his own voice. Like the parts of that antique automobile. I was a year putting that thing together, such as it is. A whole year putting an old car together. Corey closed his eyes, touched his hot cheek, and the beard stubble growing on his face. But thank God and Allenby for that car and the hours it used up, the days and the weeks. I can look at it out there and I know it's real, and reality is what I need. Because what is there left that I can believe in? The desert, the wind, the silence, or myself? Can I even believe in myself anymore? Corey opened his eyes and stared out towards the salt flats, disjointed. That described his diary. It was a crazy quilt of unrelated facts, emotions, thoughts, and attitudes, opinions that could find no rebuttal because they could not be related to anyone else. Maybe I'll become like that car, he thought, inanimate, just an item sitting in the sand. Then, would I feel loneliness? Would I feel misery? He shook his head and closed off the thought process. He'd fix dinner. He had some ice left that he'd made the other day and he'd use it. He'd open up a can of beer and put the ice in it. You never did that on earth, dilute good beer with ice, but it was something different. And anything different here was desirable. Corey went into the shack. The room was small, and it was square. There was a cot, shelves that he had built out of laminated steel, everything studded and knobbed with screws and nuts and bolts, the bookends he had made out of magnesium packing case, the chessboard from a strip of plastic with nuts and bolts for chessmen. There were many pictures drawn in charcoal and then stuck up on the wall. At first, he had sketched city scenes, and then as recollections grew dimmer, he began to draw only that which the eyes could see and his mind contain. There was a whole wall covered with pictures of the desert, the distant mountains, the salt flats, and one or two of the car. There were a few attempts at self-portraiture, and in some instances they did resemble Corey. Always it was bold-stroked pictures of a man in front of a crowd, always in front of a crowd. Always a crowd suggested by little formless waves, hints of a multitude of faces and a multitude of eyes. Corey had been a retiring man once, uneasy with people. His life had been quiet, not very social, but this sandy asteroid had changed all that. The sun had changed it. The heat had boiled away his shyness and left a barebone hunger for a society to belong to. Corey looked at himself in the makeshift mirror that hung close to the window. His face had taken on a mahogany hue, but otherwise he had not changed much, except for the lightness of his hair. About a year ago, he had taken to staring at himself in the mirror, trying to force a change in the face that looked back at him. For a few days, he had achieved something. He had been able to alter the appearance of the reflection, and for those few days, he'd carried on long conversations with a face and a piece of glass. Until one night, he started to cry and ran out into the desert to throw himself down on the sand and sob himself to sleep under a starlit sky that was nothing more than a silence upon silence. The face that stared back at him now was the familiar face. It was his. It belonged to him. It was a lonely face, the eyes deep-set and searching but without expectation. They looked out upon an emptiness and simply reflected it. Corey went to his refrigerator, took out a can of beer, and then reached into a plastic bag and took out two small, melting ice cubes. He opened the can and poured the beer into a glass with the ice cubes. Then he sat down in his stifling metal room and looked out the window, feeling weariness mixed with the sense of isolation. The big yellow desert stared back at him like a giant sandy face, just as it stared back at him of every waking moment of his day. Banishment. He had 30 more years to go, and deep inside the core of him was the knowledge that he could not live those 30 years, not with sanity at least. Already he felt pincer-like claws at his head, the nightmarish attack, as if, being, as if by an invading army, had reached down his brain, overflowed into the fortress that keeps a man behind his eyes, a screaming horde of barbaric thoughts, each drawing lifeblood from the remains of what had been James W. Corey's rational being. The supply ship landed three days later. It flashed across the sky, glinting briefly from the borrowed rays of the giant white sun, then landed with a roar several thousand yards away from Corey's shack. 
A few moments later, the crew commander, followed by two other men, came slowly across the sand towards the shack. Corey stood out in front, watching them, his mouth dry, his fingers unable to stop their shaking. Twice he had started an abortive, headlong leap across the desert to meet them, and twice had stopped himself. He felt a sound rising in his throat, a yell, an acknowledgement of the brief respite from his torment, but he throttled himself with some hidden bands of restraint, until... As they approached, he permitted himself to go slowly towards them. Captain Walter Allenby, wading through the deep sand, looked keenly at Corey. Again, he noticed how quick to age were these banishment cases, how strangely and subtly each face had changed after only three months. Allenby had been in the space service for 18 years. He had flown everything from jet aircraft to space vehicles, and in his millions of flying hours, he had gone through everything from engine failure to meteorite storms. This, however, was something else. This was having to spend 12 minutes four times a year with tormented, half-crazed men who would stare at him as if he were some kind of a messiah. There were four asteroids along the route, and Corey's was the last. Allenby heaved a sigh of relief. Three weeks from now, he would be back on Earth, and Allenby felt a stab of pity as he saw that Corey's fingers were clenched tightly out in front of him. How are you, Allenby? Corey asked him, his voice tight and dry from the effort of self-control. Just fine, Corey, Allenby answered and gestured to his two crewmen. This is James Corey, gentlemen, and this is Adams, and this is Jensen. The two men nodded as they stared intently at Corey. This was their first trip, and Corey was the fourth banishment case they'd seen. Both noted the similarity between all four men, the hunger in the eyes, the desperate look on all their faces. Adams, a thin, wiry, dark-haired youngster in his twenties, had signed on just a week before the ship left. He was a better-than-average navigator, but eleven lonely months in space punctuated only by the dry, hot asteroids had taken away his appetite, stripped the protection off his nerves, and turned him into an easily combustible, foul-mouthed little malcontent who went from rage to rage, set off by everything, from navigational problems to the itchy discomfort of his spacesuit. He associated Corey with the heat, with the discomfort, with being nine million miles from home, and with the last eleven months of loneliness and, un and discomfort. Quite a place you got here, Corey, he said. Corey's lips trembled. I'm glad you like it. I didn't say I like it. I think it stinks. Corey's head shot up. You don't have to live here, he offered quietly. No, but I've got to come back here four times a year, and that's eight months out of twelve. Away from Earth, my wife probably won't even recognize me when I get home. Corey's face softened. He turned away. I'm sorry. Adam's mouth twisted. I'll bet you are, he said acidly, but you've got it made, don't you, Corey? Makes for simple living, doesn't it? He bent down, picked up a handful of sand, and held it out towards Corey. This is Corey's kingdom, Adam said, and he let the sand run through his fingers. Right here, 6,000 miles north and south, 4,000 miles east and west, and all of it's just like this. Corey felt his fingers tremble. He wet his lips, looked briefly at Allenby, who had turned away, embarrassed, and forced a smile when he spoke to Adams again. You ought to try it 365 days a year, Adams. You'll feel like a roast that never leaves an oven. Adams' laughter was not related to humor. How about it, Captain? He said abruptly to Allenby. We've only got a few minutes. Allenby nodded. Fifteen minutes this time, to be exact, Corey. Corey tried to keep the supplication out of his voice. Nobody's checking your schedule, he said to Allenby. Why don't we have a game of cards or something? Allenby kept his voice firm with obvious effort. I'm sorry, Corey, he said. This isn't an arbitrary decision. If we delay our time of departure any more than 15 minutes, that places us in different orbital positions than we need to be. We'd never make it back to Earth. We'd have to stay here at least 14 days before the asteroid was in position again. Corey's voice went higher. So? 14 days. Why not have us a party? I've got some beer I've saved. We could play some cards. You could tell me what's going on back, back down there on Earth. Words poured out of him, strung together with little gasps, and to Allenby it was like watching a full-grown man get whipped. Allenby made a show of checking the sky. I wish we could, Corey, he answered, but like I've said, we've got 15 minutes. Corey's voice overlapped the captain's. Well, 
What's a lousy few days to you? A couple of card games? He turned towards the other two men. How about you guys? You think I'll murder you or something over a bad hand? Jensen turned away, obviously uncomfortable, but Adam stared at Corey with disgust and accusation. I'm sorry, Allenby said quiet. Then he took Corey's arm. Let's go to the shack. Corey flung the arm off, but with desperation, not anger. All right, he shrilled. All right, two minutes are gone now. You've got 13 minutes left. I wouldn't want to foul up your schedule, Allenby. Not, not for... He looked away. Not for a lousy game of cards or a few bottles of shitty beer. He looked down at his feet in the sand, then slowly raised his eyes to face Allenby like an animal caught in a trap, pleading for release. There was a nakedness to it, as if pride had been swept away. When Corey spoke again, the voice was that of a man falling into hell and scrabbling for the last ledge which offered him salvation. Allenby, he said very softly, Allenby, what about the pardon? There was a brief silence broken finally by Adams. His voice dripped with malice, like some kind of a putrefying liquid from a running sore. A pardon, Corey, he said harshly, you're out of luck. You're out of luck, buddy. The sentence reads 35 years, and they're not even reviewing cases of homicide. You've been here five, so that makes 30 to go. Corey felt a strange, icy cold moving through his body, but still Adams did not stop. 30 to go, he continued, so get comfortable, huh? He laughed briefly, his head back, his face red and itchy from the sun, the discomfort spewing out of him in the form of an attack on another human being. The laugh stopped when he saw Allenby's face. The tall captain shut him off with his eyes, made a brief gesture to Corey to follow him, and then headed back to the shack. Corey walked beside him, the sand sending up crunchy sounds as they sank down through the crust of the top layer. At intervals, Allenby glanced surreptitiously at Corey, who looked beaten and sick. They reached a small knoll close to the shack, and there Corey stopped. Both men gazed down on the metal structure and the old car that sat there in a mute, ugly loneliness. It just crossed my mind, Captain, Corey said. It just crossed my mind. This is 90% of the view I'm going to have for the next 30 years, just what I'm looking at now. That shack, that car, and all that desert. And this is my company for the next 30 years. Allenby touched his arm with an, with an instinctive gentleness and compassion. His own voice was quiet. I'm sorry, Corey, the captain said. Unfortunately, we don't make the rules. All we do is deliver your supplies and pass on information. I told you last time that there'd been a lot of pressure back home about this kind of punishment. There are a lot of people who think it's unnecessarily cruel. He paused for a moment. Well, who knows what the next couple years will bring, right? They may change their minds, alter the law, imprison you on earth like back in the old days. Corey turned to stare at the captain's face. There was no emotion in his voice now. It was flat. Flat like the desert around him, dry like the sand. Unrevealing like the vast expanse of nothingness that surrounded them. Allenby, Corey said, I'll tell you something. Every morning. Every morning when I get up, I tell myself, this is my last day of sanity. His voice broke for a moment, and then he recovered. I won't be able to live another day of loneliness. Not another day. And by noon, I can't keep my fingers still, and the inside of my mouth feels like gunpowder and burnt copper, and deep down inside my gut, I got an ache that won't go away and seems to be crawling all over the inside of my body, pricking at me, tearing out little chunks of me. And then I think I've got to hold out for another day. Just another day. He turned away from Allenby and stared down at the shack again. But I can't keep doing that day after day, he continued. For the next thirty years, I'll lose my mind. I swear to God, I'll lose my mind. Adams, coming up the knoll and only a few yards away, heard part of what Corey was saying. He shook his head. The heat was burning the back of his neck and he felt stifled. Jesus, he exploded. Honest to God, Corey, you're breaking my heart. Corey whirled around, his face contorted. He growled like an animal and then screamed from deep inside his chest. He lunged at Adams, catching him off balance and sending him sprawling backwards down the knoll. He was on him in an instant, hitting him in the face, crunching, desperate blows that smashed against flesh and bone until Allenby and Jensen pulled Corey off and threw him backwards. Allenby, standing between the prostrate man and his attacker, shouted at Corey, Easy, Corey, easy, calm down. Very gradually, Corey let his body relax, moving the route from a trembling, shaking a shaking fighting stance, the tired, heavy, motionless stance that served better in the heat. 
Adam slowly got to his feet, feeling the tear on his cheek, the throbbing bruise on his jaw. I wouldn't worry about going off my rocker if I were you, Corey, he said. It's already happened. Stir-crazy, they used to call it. Well, that's what you are now. Stir-crazy. Allenby took a step towards him to make certain he'd stay in one place. Back off, Adams, he ordered. You and Jensen go back and get the supplies. Bring them over to the shack. Adams bridled. Mr. Corey has a broken leg or something? He pointed to Corey. Allenby said, Adams, do as I tell you. He paused looking briefly at Corey and then back towards Adams. And the big crate, he continued with the red tag. Handle that one gently. Jensen looked over towards the car and grinned. How about the use of that buggy there? Some of the stuff's heavy. Corey answered as if shaken out of a dream. It isn't running today, he said. Once again, Adams laughed. It isn't running today. What's the matter, Corey? Use it too much, do you? He turned to Jensen. You know there's so many places a guy can go out here. There's the country club over the mountains there, and the seahorse over that way, and a drive-in theater. There's some places around here. That's some place around here, isn't it, Corey? Corey stood motionless, his head down. Allenby faced the young navigator. The gentleness of his tone did not disguise the sense of absolute command that permeated the voice. I'm going to tell you one more time, Adams. Go get the stuff, or you'll wind up the rest of the trip with your hands tied behind your back, and I'll have every right to handle it that way. Adams opened his mouth to retort and then shut it tight. He cast a vindictive look at Corey and then turned back and started back across the desert, with Jensen following behind him. Allenby took Corey's arm and the two men walked down the knoll towards the shack, up the steps of the burning hot metal porch and inside. Corey sat down on his cot, staring at his folded hands, and Allenby went, by, went to the refrigerator and took out a jug of water. Glasses, he asked. Corey motioned towards the shelf. Paper cups are up there. Allenby unscrewed the jar, sniffed it and made a face. He poured some water into a cup and took a quick gulp. We've got some f some fresh on board, he said to Corey. They'll be bringing it over. Corey nodded numbly, not looking at him. Allenby took a deep breath and then pulled up a chair directly opposite Corey. He studied the man on the cot as if formulating an approach. I brought you some magazines too, he said, strictly on my own. Corey nodded. Thanks. And some microfilm, some old vintage movies, science stuff. You'll get a kick out of it. Again, Corey nodded. I'm sure I will, thank you. Allenby ran his tongue over his lips and stared at Corey for a long, silent moment, then rose and crossed over to the window. I brought you something else, Corey, Allenby said over his shoulder. It would be my job if they suspected, he paused. It would be my neck if they found out for sure. Look, Allenby, Corey said grimly, I don't want gifts now, I don't want tidbits. It makes me feel like an animal in a cage, and there's a nice old lady out there who wants to throw peanuts at me. He was suddenly on his feet, his voice high again and shrill. A pardon, Allenby, he shouted. That's the only gift I want. The words tumbled out, propelled by his grief, by his urgency, by a sudden hopelessness that descended on him. I killed an animal, Allenby. As God is my witness, I killed an animal, and he had no business living anyway. Fine, punish me. I accept that. Stick me in jail. But Allenby, his voice quivered and his eyes glistening, Allenby, not this. Jesus Christ, not this. Allenby nodded and said, I know, Corey. I know all about it. He retraced his steps to the chair and sat down. I doubt if it'll be any consolation to you, Corey, but it's not easy handling this kind of an assignment, stopping here four times a year and having to look at a man in agony. Allenby spoke truth, and only truth, and Corey realized it. There was compassion in Allenby, Allenby and honesty but Corey was unable to keep back the harshness. You're quite right, Allenby, he spit out. That's precious little consolation. Allenby rose. He walked directly over to Corey. I can't bring you freedom, Corey. This is the only thing... This is the only thing that I can't bring you. All I can do... All I can try to do is to bring you things to help you keep your sanity. Something, anything, so you can fight loneliness. They heard Adams and Jensen, who were lugging a small metal cart down from the knoll towards the shack. Allenby could see the boxes of supplies on the cart and a rectangular crate that measured seven feet and had a red tag fluttering from one end. Captain, Jensen called out, you want this big crate opened up? Allenby 
hurriedly answered them. No, not yet. Stay out there. I'll be right out. Corey looked out the window, motioned to Allenby and said, I'll bite, Captain. What's the present? He looked through the window. What is it? Allenby turned very slowly towards Corey. It's something I brought you, Corey. Corey laughed shortly. If it's a 20-year supply of puzzles, lots of luck. I'll have to decline with... I'll have to decline with thanks. I don't need any puzzles, Allenby. If I want to try to probe any mysteries, I can look in the mirror and try to figure out my own. Allenby went to the door and put his hand on the knob. We've got to go now. We'll be back in three months. There was a silence. You listening to me, Corey? This is important. Corey looked up, Corey looked up at him. When you open the crate, Allenby said, there's nothing you need to do. The item has been vacuum-packed. It needs no activator of any kind. The air will do that. There'll be a booklet inside, too, that can answer any of your questions. You are mysterious as hell, Corey said. I don't mean to be, Allenby answered. It's just like I told you, though. I'm risking a lot to have brought this here. He pointed towards the window. They don't know what it is. I'd appreciate your waiting till we get out of sight before you open it. Corey was barely listening to him. All right, he said flatly. Have a good trip back. Give my regards to his wet lips. He wet his lips and looked down at the floor. To Broadway and every other place while you're at it. Allenby nodded and studied the other man. Sure, Corey, he said quietly. I'll see you. He opened the door and went out. Through the window, Corey could see him motion to the others as they followed him across the desert back towards the ship. Corey, watching the retreating back of his captain, suddenly called out, Allenby. The three men stopped and turned turned towards him. Allenby, Corey yelled. I don't much care what it is, but for the thought, Allenby, for the decency of it, thank you. Allenby nodded, his mouth taut, feeling a sickness in his stomach. You're quite welcome, Corey. You're quite welcome. Corey watched him for a long, long time until they disappeared over the line of dunes, then aimlessly without direction, without much thought, he went outside. The crates were piled end on end beside the long rectangular box with the red tag. Corey studied it, throwing questions at himself in his mind as to what it might be. It was a mystery, but an insignificant mystery. What the hell difference did it make what it was? Games, cards, puzzles, books, microfilm, whatever. The newness of it would be corroded under the sun and it would change into what everything else changed into on the asteroid. A blob of weary familiarity without excitement and without challenge. He kicked at the box with his foot and then slowly turned and studied the horizon in the direction where Allenby had disappeared. Alongside the ship, Jensen was clambering up the metal ladder to the open hatch. He disappeared inside and Allenby motioned Adams to follow. Adams went halfway up the ladder then looked down towards Allenby who was staring off into the distance. Captain, Adams said, just man to man, huh? Allenby, as if shaken from a trance, stared up at him. What? he asked. What did you bring him? Adams asked. What was in the box? Allenby smiled and then said softly more to himself than to Adams. I'm not really sure, maybe. Maybe it's just an illusion. Or maybe it's salvation. He waved Adams up the ladder and followed him towards the open hatch. Ten and a half minutes had gone by and they'd blast off in exactly 53 seconds. Moments later, as the ship raced through the sky on the long trip home, Allenby felt a pang of guilt. They were going back to Earth. The green Earth. An Earth full of sounds and smells. An Earth that was home. He could not bring himself to look back through the rear scanner at the tiny yellow blob that floated through space, carrying a man in anguish who sat in a metal shack, contemplating nothing but more anguish. Corey had opened the crate, removed what was inside, and was reading a booklet, you are now the proud possessor, the first paragraph began, of a robot built in the form of a woman. To all intents and purposes, this creature is a woman. Physiologically and psychologically, she is a human being with a set of emotions, a memory track, and the ability to reason, to think, and to speak. She is beyond illness and under normal circumstances should have a lifespan similar to that of a comparable human being. Her name is Alicia. Very slowly, Corey let the booklet slip out of his fingers. He looked across the yards of sand, over to the crate, and to the creature who stood alongside it. She looked human. She had long brown hair, deep-set brown eyes, a straight, tiny nose, a firm jaw. She was dressed in a simple, loose-flowing garment that neither added nor detracted from her femininity. 
But it was her face that Corey stared at. There was no expression in the eyes. There was a deadness, a lack of vitality, an almost comatose immobility of the features, the mouth, the eyes, the face muscles. It was a mask, just a beautiful mask. The face of a woman, but nonetheless just a mask or a covering. Corey felt a revulsion, a horror at this thing that looked at him with glassy orbs that so resembled human eyes but were so emotionlessly unhuman in their empty stare. Get out of here, Corey said in a low voice as he advanced towards her. Get out of here. His voice was louder as he glared at her, the horror he felt crawling across his skin. Get out of here. I don't want any machine in here. Go on, get. The robot looked back at him, then opened her mouth and spoke. My name is Alicia, the mouth said. The voice was that of a woman, but there was a coldness to it as well. My name is Alicia. What's yours? It was ludicrous. It was beyond belief. This thing that spoke to him from the desert floor. This machine that mouthed proprieties as if it was from some book on etiquette. It spoke to him in a language of tea parties and civilization. Corey took another step to stand near her, staring at her. He no longer shouted. He just stood there shaking his head, and finally he said in a flat, even tone, I'm going inside now, and when I come back out, when I come back out, I don't want to find you here, do you understand? Without waiting for a reply, he turned and walked back towards the shack, leaving this thing that looked so much like a woman standing in the sand, watching him as he disappeared inside. She had come on what Corey was certain was Thursday, and now it was Saturday afternoon. He had seen very little of her. During the day, she would stand on the knoll close to the shack watching him, and at night, she was either gone, or on, on occasion he could hear her on the metal porch, but he never spoke to her. He was digging a hole for garbage now, and as always, he waited till the late afternoon. Not that it was much cooler, or there was any more shade, but the habit pattern of a life spent on Earth still persisted in the functions of Corey's existence. Late afternoon, he'd always associated with cooling down. Even when he stayed breathlessly hot, he did most of his physical labor then. He leaned on his shovel, wiping a sweatless face, looking at a sun just reaching the top of the mountains. Now, bright orange instead of a glaring white. It nonetheless sent, sent out its cascades of heat. Alicia came walking down the dune towards him. She carried a bucket of water, which she had She'd put down on the sand a few feet from him, her mechanical face staring, staring at his, as if sightless. Well, Corey asked her, I brought you some water, where should I put it? Just leave it in there and get out of here. It'll get warm, Alicia said, just sitting there. Corey took the dipper from the bucket, tasted the water, spit some of it out, and then put the dipper back. He stared at her, and saw how intently she seemed to stare back. You'd know, huh? he asked. Know what? You'd know that water would get warm. The corners of Alicia's mouth wrinkled, and it was as close to a smile as he'd ever noticed from her. I can feel thirst, she said. Corey wiped his mouth with the back of his hand and stared at her again. He found himself staring at her a lot lately, but it was not the inventory of interest that a man uses to normally look at a woman. It was a clinical examination of a foreign object. It was the reluctant stare of a man who finds himself in a freak house and yet feels the painful fascination of all that which is strange and odd and unearthly. What else can you feel? feel Corey asked. The question was rhetorical. I don't understand, Alicia began. I suppose you can feel heat and cold, can't you? Corey interrupted her. How about pain? Can you feel pain? Alicia nodded and the flat voice suddenly sounded strangely soft. That too. Corey took a step over to her and looked at her. How? he asked. How can you? You are a machine, aren't you? Yes, Alicia whispered. I am a machine. Of course you are, Corey said. His mouth twisted. His eyes glared at her with distaste. Why didn't they build you to look like a machine? Why aren't you made out of metal with nuts and bolts sticking out of you? With wires and electrodes and things like that? His voice rose. Why do they turn you into a lie? Why do they cover you up with what looks like flesh? Why do they give you a face? His nails dug deep into the palm of his hands, and something else went into his voice at this moment. A face, he said, his voice very low, a face that if I look at it long enough makes me think, makes me believe that... His hands grabbed her shoulders and went up past her neck to cup her face in a hard, painful grasp. Alicia closed her eyes against the pain. Corey, she said, her voice pleading. You mock me, he said to her. You know what? When you look at me, when you talk to me, I'm being mocked.
I'm sorry, Alicia said. She slowly reached up and felt her neck and shoulders. You hurt me, Corey. Corey stared at her. Disgust in his eyes. Hurt you? He asked her, his hands grabbing her shoulders again. How in fucking hell could I hurt you? His fingers dug into her flesh. I'd like you to explain that to me. How could I possibly hurt you? This isn't flesh. There aren't any nerves. There aren't any tendons or muscles under there. Corey felt the soft, yielding stuff under his fingertips, and just for an illogical moment, he thought he smelled a perfume, a gentle sweetness that filled the air around her, and again, the feeling rose in him that he must crush this thing in front of him. He must twist and pull it apart. He must end it standing there and mocking him from morning till night. His fingers pressed tighter into her until, forced down by weight and pain, she was on her knees. He reluctantly pulled his hands away from her, looked at her kneeling there, her head down, her tussled brown hair hanging long in front of her. The fury that he felt was beyond any understanding. He knew only that he must destroy. Kneeling in front of him was his loneliness. Prostrated at his feet was the heat and the discomfort. Vulnerable and weak was the massive desert. It was all in front of him now in the form of a mocking machine. This was the wildness in his mind as he picked up a shovel, lifted it high in the air. He had already begun the downward arc of the swing as he screamed at her. You know what you are? The metal face of the shovel glinted in the departing sun. Do you know what you are? You're like that broken down heap I've got sitting in the yard. You're a hunk of metal with arms and legs instead of wheels. The shovel stopped its descent and shook in his hands. His voice took on a different tone, quieter and somehow calmer. But that goddamn heap doesn't mock me like you do. It doesn't look at me with make-believe eyes and talk to me with a make-believe voice. Well, listen, you... you machine. I'm sick of being mocked by a ghost, by a memory of a woman, and that's all you are. You're a reminder to me that I'm so lonely I'm about to lose my mind. The woman raised her face to him, and it was only then that he realized that her eyes were wet and that tears rolled down her cheeks. Very slowly, his hands went loose and he was unaware of when the shovel slipped from his fingers and dropped down to the sand. He stared at her. The face was no longer inanimate, no longer immobile. It had depth and it had emotion. It was filled with the nuances and the mysteries of that which is a woman, and there was a beauty in the face too. Corey trembled and slowly went down to his knees to kneel close to her. He extended a shaking hand that met her cheek, and he felt the wetness on it. You can cry? Alicia nodded. With reason, she said, looking up at him, and I can feel loneliness too. He took her arm and helped her to her feet, then stood very close to her. There was a moment's silence before he could bring himself to speak. Finally, he said, we'll go back home now and we'll eat dinner. She nodded again. All right. And she started to walk ahead of him. Corey called out to her. Alicia? She stopped and turned. Alicia, he began. There was something in his tone, something rich, something deep. It was man talking to woman. There was gentleness and compassion and something that went beyond both. Yes, Corey? I don't care. I don't care how you were born or made. You're flesh and blood to me. You're a woman. He took a step towards her and reached out for her. Her hand met his. You're my companion. Do you understand? You're my companion. I need you desperately. She smiled at him, a smile of infinite warmth, a smile that lit up the face and that shone in the eyes, a smile that was yet another part of the beauty that was that was this woman. And I need you, Corey. They held hands as they walked back towards the shack. Corey would reflect later that at this moment he had felt at peace, and he had felt a composure almost unbearably sweet. And walking towards the shack, he was conscious of the feel of her hand, when he stole a look at her profile, he felt that this was the most beautiful woman that he'd ever seen. He went into the shack, and she started to set the table. Corey's eyes never left her. This woman must never leave his sight again. He must never be without her. And though he could not articulate this because his whole being was so scarred and battered by conflicting emotions, James Corey had indeed found salvation. It had come in the form of a woman, a robotic woman. James Corey was in love. Eleven months had passed. They had been incredible months for Corey. Incredible in the sense that everything had changed. Loneliness had become, had become quiet and solitude. The vast expanse of desert had taken on a strange beauty. The star-filled nights held interest and mystery. He sat on the porch at, at the close of a day and wrote in his diary, 
Alicia has been with me now for almost a year. Twice, when Allenby has brought the ship in with supplies, I've hidden her so the others wouldn't see her. I've seen the question in Allenby's eyes each time. It's a question I ask myself. It's difficult to write what has been the sum of a total of this very bizarre relationship. It is man and woman, man and machine, and there are times when I know that Alicia is simply an extension of myself. I hear my words coming from her. I feel my emotions. The things that she has learned to love are the things that I have loved. He stopped and listened to the sound of Alicia singing from inside the shack, the voice high and clear. He smiled and continued to write again. But I think I've reached the point now where I shall not analyze Alicia any longer. I shall accept her simply as part of my life, an integral part. He continued to write silently, turning the pages, conscious of Alicia's voice as it drifted from inside the shack. She came to the door and she smiled at him. He knew the face. He knew the smile as he knew the face, each line, each expression, each look of the eyes. He smiled and winked at her, then threw her a kiss. She turned from the door and disappeared. He looked down at what he had been writing. Because I'm not lonely anymore, each day can now be lived with... with a relative sense of peace. I love Alicia, so nothing else matters. It was night, and she lay cradled in his arms as they looked up towards the stars. Look, Alicia, Corey said, that's the star Betagilith. It's in the constellation of Orion, and there's the Great Bear with its pointer stars in the line with the Northern Star. And there's the constellation Hercules, see it? He traced the path across the sky with a finger, then turned to look down at her face. It was in shadow, only her eyes visible in the starlight. God's beauty, she answered softly. Corey nodded. That's right, Alicia, God's beauty. The girl suddenly stiffened. That star, she asked. What's that star, Corey? Corey studied the tiny dot that traversed the night sky. That's not a star. That's a ship, Alicia. A ship. The tiny dot grew in brightness and dimensions as they were watching. Alicia turned to him. There's no ship due here now, Corey. You said not for another three months. You said after the last time it wouldn't be for another three months. Corey's voice interrupted her. It must be Allenby's ship, he said thoughtfully. It's the only one that ever comes. They stop at the other asteroids, then they go home. He looked away pensively. That means they'll probably be here by morning. His voice was heavy with question, but I wonder why. Alicia rose. Corey, what does it mean? He smiled at her in the darkness. In the morning, we'll find out. He held out a hand to her, and she moved back down to him, clinging to him, and Corey felt again the closeness, almost the oneness. He put his lips to her hair, and then touched her cheek and then her chin. He kissed her, and was no longer aware of the desert or stars of the tiny dot of light that hurtled through space towards them. Like all dawns, it was bright and hot, and the stillness was broken only by the distant voice of Allenby. His shout carried over the silence, and after a moment, Corey could see him running from far off beyond the first ring of the dunes. Beyond him were two space-suited figures trying to keep up with the commander. When Allenby reached Corey, he was out of breath, his face white with exhaustion. Where the hell have you been? Allenby asked. Corey saw something special in his face, a look that he had not seen before. Right here, what's the matter? Allenby grinned, some of the exhaustion seeping away. No, we didn't have any trouble. He took a side look at the other two men who also grinned, even Adams. Allenby touched Corey's shoulder. He was obviously trying to restrain himself. There was something going on that Corey couldn't guess at. This is a scheduled stop, Allenby said. We've got good news for you, Corey, Adams said. Corey looked from face to face, and he said, That's fine, but I'm not interested. Allenby squinted against the sun, then grinned again. You'd better hear what it is before you turn us down. Allenby, I'm not interested. You will be, this I guarantee. Corey again studied the faces of the space-suited men and took a step back from him. There was, a, there was a suspicion now, a germ of doubt in the beginning of an alarm. Allenby, he said, give me a break, will you? I don't want any trouble. Allenby laughed. We don't either, Corey. Adams turned to Jensen. He gets worse, he said. If we'd come a month later... He could have been eating sand or something. Corey suddenly felt that he had to get away from these men. He turned back with a kind of enforced nonchalance and started marching away from them, back towards the shack. Corey, Allenby called after him. 
Corey walked faster, and then hearing Allenby's footsteps behind him, broke into a dead sprint. Corey! Allenby caught him and grabbed him by the shoulders and whirled him around. Listen, you fucking idiot. It's this way. Your sentence has been reviewed. You've been given a pardon. We're to take you back home on the ship right now. Corey's eyes went wide. His mouth was open. He did not believe what he had just heard. Allenby saw the look and laughter come back to his voice, the laughter of relief, the laughter of the bearer of such fantastically good tidings that it could almost not be put into words. But I'm going to have to tell you something, you dumb bastard, Allenby roared at him. We've got to take off from here in exactly 21 minutes. We can't wait any longer. We've been dodging meteor storms all the way out here and we're almost out of fuel. Any longer than 21 minutes and we'll have passed the point of departure and then I don't think we'll ever make it back. Tears were in Corey's eyes as he looked at Allenby and the two men who stood on one of the dunes watching him. Corey closed his eyes, blinking back the wetness. He tried to speak, and for a, mo- for a moment, nothing came out. Allenby. Allenby, just wait a minute, will you? He opened his eyes. What did you just say? What did you just say about a pardon? Allenby said, his voice rich and deep and still full of laughter. A pardon, Corey. But it won't do us any good, Adams called out, unless you get your stuff together and get ready to move, Corey. We've picked up three other men off asteroids, and we've only got room for about 15 pounds of stuff. So you'd better pick up what you need in a hurry and leave the rest of it behind. He looked off, grinning in the direction of the shack. Such as it is, he added. Corey's voice shook with excitement, and he tried to throttle himself. Stuff? My stuff? I don't even have 15 pounds of stuff. He started to laugh as he walked back towards the shack. The words came out between gusts of laughter, roaring, unquenchable, joyful laughter. Laughter of such massive relief and thanksgiving that it was unrelated to any emotion he'd ever felt before. I've got a shirt, he said as he walked, a pencil, and a ledger book, and a pair of shoes. The tears rolled down his cheeks as he laughed again. A goddamn pair of shoes, that's what I've got. He looked across the bare space towards the antique car. The car you can keep here. That'll be for the next poor devil. Allenby shook his head. There won't be any next poor devil, Corey. There won't be any more exiles. This was the last time. Good, Corey said. Wonderful. Thank God for that. He talked as they walked back towards the shack, his words spewing out, propelled by his excitement and incredible joy that he felt. We'll let it rest here, then, the farthest auto graveyard in the universe. And Alicia and I will wave to it as we leave. We just look out of a porthole and throw it a kiss goodbye. The car, the shack, the salt flats, the range, the whole fucking thing. Alicia and I will just... He was suddenly aware of the silence and finally brought himself to look up at Allenby's face. It looked white and somber. Behind him, Adams had stopped and looked at him puzzled. Who, Corey? Adams asked. Who? Allenby shut his eyes tight. Oh, my dear God, he whispered. I forgot her. Corey again looked from face to face and then stopped on Allenby. Allenby? It was almost an accusation. Allenby, it's Alicia. Jensen whispered to Adams, he's out of his fucking mind, isn't he? Adams started a slow walk towards Corey. Who's Alicia, Corey? Corey smiled, shaking his head at what was obviously an absurdity that they shouldn't, that they shouldn't know Alicia and that they shouldn't be aware of her. Who's Alicia? He laughed aloud. Adams, you idiot. Who's Alicia? You brought her. She's a woman. Then catching Allenby's look, his voice was softer. A robot, but closer to a woman, he added. She's kept me alive, Allenby. I swear to God, if it weren't for her, he looked around at the circle of silent faces. What's the matter? Corey asked. You're worried about Alicia? He shook his head. You needn't be. Alicia's harmless. She's like a woman. She is a woman. She's gentle and kind, and without her... Allenby, I tell you, without her, I'd have been finished. I'd have given up. His voice was quiet now. You would have had to come back here only to bury me. Adams looked at the commander. That's why you wouldn't let us look at that crate? The one with the red tag? Allenby turned away. I'm sorry, Captain, Corey said to him, but I had to let it out. Allenby held up his hand. That's all right, Corey. That's all over with, but unfortunately that's not the problem. Again, Corey laughed high and uncontrollable. Problem? There aren't any problems. There are more problems in heaven... There aren't any more problems on heaven or earth. We'll pack up 15 pounds of stuff and we'll climb into the ship of yours and we'll get back onto the beautiful green earth. He stopped abruptly and some hidden portion of his mind, realization had come to him. His lips formed silent words. 15 pounds. Then he whispered it. 15 pounds? 
It came out now as a shout. Fifteen pounds? He reached out and grabbed Allenby, his face taut, his eyes pleading. You've got to have room for more than that, Allenby. Throw out stuff. Throw out equipment. Alicia weighs more than fifteen pounds. Allenby very slowly reached up to remove Corey's hands from his suit. His voice was heavy with misery. That's the point, he said quietly. We're stripped now, Corey. We've got room for you and nothing else except that ledger of yours with the pencil. He shook his head slowly back and forth. You'll have to leave the robot behind. Corey stared at him aghast. His voice shook. She's not just a robot, Allenby. You don't understand. You simply don't understand. You leave her behind and that's murder. Allenby shook his head again. I'm sorry, Corey. I don't have any choice. God, man, don't you understand? I don't have any choice. Corey backed away, his body suddenly feeling cold. No, Allenby, you don't understand. You can't leave her behind. He suddenly turned and screamed, Alicia, come here. He whirled around toward the three men. You'll see, he shouted to them. You'll see why you can't leave her behind. Alicia, he shouted again. He turned and ran towards the shack, climbing the steps in a single bound, slamming against the door and flinging himself into an empty room. Allenby was behind him. The other two stood on the porch. Where is she, Corey? Allenby asked. I don't know, but when you see her, you'll know why you can't leave her behind. Look, Corey, Adam said from the porch, we just want you to get your gear packed so we can all get out of here. He looked at his watch nervously. We've only got about ten minutes. How about it, Captain? Allenby took a deep breath. Come on, Corey, he said gently. Corey backed into the room. I'm not leaving, Allenby, he told you. I told you that. I can't leave. He stood against the far wall. It was incredible to him that he didn't understand. It was beyond belief that they didn't perceive what surely must be an evident truth. You couldn't leave a beautiful woman alone on an asteroid, not somebody like Alicia. Allenby read his thoughts. He gritted his teeth, his fingers clenched and unclenched. He took a step towards Corey. Corey, he said, this is our last trip here. This is everybody's last trip. It's off the route now. That means no supplies, nothing. That means if you stay here, you die here. And that way, there'd be a day, Corey, when you'd pray for death to come quicker than it's bargained for. Corey shook his head, rejecting him, rejecting his words. There was no logic. There were no answering facts. There was just this one simple truth. I can't leave her behind, Allenby, and you won't take her, so that means that I have to stay. His face agonized, he threw himself against the window and screamed out towards the desert beyond. Alicia, don't come, stay away. Allenby moved across the room hurriedly. He grabbed Corey, pulled him close to him. It was now, and only now. The thing had to be done now. Corey, he said, I saw this thing get crated and shoved into a box. I don't care, Corey whispered. She's a machine, Corey. She's a motor with wires, tubes, and batteries. She's a woman, Corey said brokenly. Oh God, Allenby, she's a woman, and she's my woman. Jansen's voice came from the front porch. Captain, we've only got four minutes. We need to leave now. Adams came in, tense and frightened. How about it, How about it, Captain Allenby? What do you say we just leave him here? Allenby shook his head. We can't leave him here. Sick, mad, or half alive, we need to bring him back. Those are the orders. He turned again towards Corey. It isn't just you now, Corey, he said evenly. Now it's all of us. So that means that we can't talk anymore, and we can't argue with you. We simply have to take you with us. Allenby felt a shock of pain in his stomach as Corey lunged against him, flailing with an elbow and pushing him aside. Adams toppled sideways as Corey backhanded him away. They could hear him shouting as he raced across the desert away from the shack. Alicia! Allenby was on his feet and out the door in a moment, Adams and Jensen following. It was as if the whole purpose of Allenby's life was funneled into this pursuit. He had to take this man back. He had to save him. A hundred yards ahead, he saw Corey stop and then disappear into a gully. When he reached the spot, he was almost too afraid to look. Adams and Jensen caught up with him, and he heard them gasp. Corey was kneeling beside the figure of a woman. She looked up at them with eyes like a frightened child. Corey saw the three spacesuited figures. Desperation clawed at his voice. Alicia, talk to them, he begged. Tell them you're a woman. Explain to them. Allenby walked slowly down the dune towards the gully. He had a pistol and a holster on his belt. He unbuckled it as he walked. Corey, he pleaded, you've got to understand this. He stopped a few feet from him. His voice was an agonized whisper. I don't have any choice. God help me, I don't have any choice. 
He took the gun out of the holster and held it up. Corey turned to him, still on his knees. Allenby, she's a human being. Don't you understand? Alicia's a human. He started to crawl towards Allenby, sobbing. Allenby, she's a human being. Please. His voice was drowned out by the shrieking whine of the pistol as it blasted the hot stillness of the morning. Corey felt his blood congeal, and something he didn't know what forced him to turn and look at the woman who was behind him. She had been hit in the face, and the force of the blast had lifted her off the ground and flung her aside. She lay against the side of the dune, propped up like a puppet. The big hole, where her face had been, ringed by brown curls, was a horror of twisted wires, smashed tubes, and a thin spiral of smoke. The remnant of an eye hung down in front, and, an inc- and incredibly a voice yet came from this. Corey, it said. Corey. It made other sounds like a record running down on a turntable, and then it was quiet. Captain, Adam said, it needs to be now. Allenby, staring at the gun in his hand, nodded. It will be now, he said softly. Then he looked at Corey. Let's go, Corey. It's time to go home. The four men walked across the desert towards the spaceship that awaited them. Corey moved like an automatron. It's all behind you now, Corey, Allenby said to him as they approached the ship. It's all behind you, like a bad dream, like a nightmare. And when you wake up, you'll be on Earth. You'll be home. Home? Corey's voice sounded hollow and strange. That's right, Allenby said. He touched the other man's arm. All you're leaving behind you, Corey, is loneliness. Corey stopped, then slowly turned to stare back toward the glinting metal thing that was the shack, and beyond it to the right, a tiny blob of color that was a woman's dress lying in the sand. He could not cry now, except those silent tears that came from deep within. I must remember, he said. I must remember to keep that in mind. He let Allenby take his elbow, turn him around, and lead him to the giant metal cylindrical thing that stood poised, pointing impatiently towards the sky. Moments later, there was a roar, and the ship headed upwards. Down below, on a microscopic piece of land that floated through space, was a fragment of a man's life, left to rust where the place he'd lived in and the machines he'd used. Without use, they would disintegrate from the wind and the sand and the years that acted upon them. All of Mr. Corey's machines, including the one made in his image and kept alive by love, it lay mutilated in the sand. It had become obsolete. God damn it, I love that story. Thank you guys for tuning in to another episode of the Halloween special edition of the Anthology of Horror. I've been your host and narrator, Springheeled Jack. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can do so by going to Instagram.com slash DukeLandis17. That is Instagram.com slash DukeLandis17. And please be sure to check back tomorrow for another story. Today's story was by Rod Serling. Look forward to hearing from you guys. Thank you very much for listening to the show. And if you haven't done so already, please rate the show on Podcast Store or on Spotify. It doesn't cost any money. It would be much appreciated if you could do it, though, because it does help with the searching algorithm. All right, guys. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And until next time, stay spooky. Stay spooky.